Chapter 15 of Ashton Kirk, Investigator, by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 15. Miss Vale Departs Suddenly. For a moment, there was a silence between the two men. Then Ashton Kirk said dryly, Miss Vale has, apparently, not been altogether frank with us in this matter. "'You think, then?' began Pendleton, in a voice of terror. But Ashton Kirk stopped him. "'I think many things,' said he. "'But they are neither here nor there. Facts are what count. Put the circumstances together for yourself and see where they lead you.' Miss Vale has been, from the first, mixed up more or less in this crime. She explained. As far as I knew, the explanation was made in good faith. Now we find her here, in this lonely place, quietly engaged with a man whom I have convinced myself is one of Hume's murderers. There was another pause. This time, it was Pendleton who broke the silence. As you say spoke he, in a strange, throaty sort of tone. She has not been quite frank. Take all the circumstances together, and they seem to point... He paused, as though quite unable to finish. Ashton Kirk laid a hand upon his shoulder. Imagination is a thing that is vitally necessary in this sort of work, said he. But it must be held in check by reason. The great trouble with an amateur is that he reasons up to a certain point. Then he allows his imagination to take a long leap toward a result. The upshot is that his results have seldom anything to support them. The correct method, I think, is to allow the imagination to scurry ahead, in the way that is natural to it. But reason must follow close behind, proving each step of the way. To be sure, you may have theories hypotheses, ideas without end, but you must never take them for granted. Select each in its turn. Place it in a tube, as the chemist does. Add a few drops of reason, and you may produce a fact. It is the only way to go about it. Once a man becomes fixed in a belief, be there ever so little foundation for it, his mind stops revolving the subject. Further procedure is hopeless. "'I understand all that well enough,' said Pendleton. "'But,' and he waved his hand toward the house, "'what does this mean?' "'I don't know,' said Ashton Kirk. "'And neither do you. "'So, that being the case, there is but one thing to do. "'Find out.' "'They gazed toward the window once more. "'Miss Vale had apparently mastered the contents of the paper.' and was now engaged in writing rapidly. As the young men watched, she stopped, read carefully what she had written, and then handed it to Locke. The mute carried the paper to the light, and holding it very near to his eyes, read it with much attention. Then he tore it to strips, placed it upon the red coals of a stove which stood near him, and watched it burn. Facing Miss Vale, his fingers began to fly rapidly in intricate signs. This only lasted a moment, however, for he stopped, 
gestured passionately, seized a pad of paper, and began to write. While he was thus engaged, Ashton Kirk said to Pendleton in a low tone, Remain here for a moment. Then, slowly, carefully, the investigator made his way toward the window through which Miss Vale and Locke were to be seen. Heavy beams of light shot across the ground from the windows, but here and there were trails of shadow. He clung to these until he had reached the shelter of the walls. Then, to Pendleton's amazement, he stepped directly in front of the window through which the two were to be seen, rapped smartly upon the glass, and remained standing in full view of the two in the room. Pendleton saw the pad drop from Locke's hands. He saw the mute wheel as he felt the vibrations and stare at the window, his eyes puckered and straining. He also saw Miss Vale rise, saw her hands thrown out in a gesture much like despair, and also he heard the cry that she uttered, muffled by the confines of the room, but full of fear. Then the room was plunged into darkness. An instant later a door was heard to open. The sound of quick-moving feet came to him. There followed the pulsations of a motor and the racing of a car away into the night. "'She's off,' breathed the young man and there was undoubted relief in the knowledge. She's off, and I really believe that's what Kirk was after. He walked toward the house and found his friend standing in the shadows. Well, chuckled the investigator, it did not take her long to make up her mind, eh? You had some motive in doing that, accused Pendleton. What was it? Ashton Kirk was about to reply, but just then the small figure of Locke made its appearance. He carried a lantern and was approaching with stumbling steps, his eyes peering and blinking in their efforts to pierce the gloom. Not until he was well upon the two did he make them out. Then he halted, lifted the light above his head, and surveyed them intently. In the rays of the lantern, Ashton Kirk smiled urbanely and bowed. The supple fingers of the mute writhed inquiringly. "'Each of them forms itself into a wild note of interrogation,' said Pendleton. "'They are fairly screaming questions at you.' Ashton Kirk smiled even more agreeably at Locke, and shook his head. Then he went through the pantomime of one writing, and finished by pointing to the house. Carefully, eagerly, fearfully, the mute examined them. His near-sighted eyes and the wavering light must have made it all but impossible for him to make them out. However, he, at length, motioned for them to follow him and started back by the way which he had come. But after a few steps, he halted. He indicated that they were to remain where they were. Then he went to the shed-like building, closed the door, and locked it placing the key in his pocket. "'It would seem,' observed Ashton Kirk, "'that we are not to be trusted implicitly.' "'Also,' replied Pendleton, "'that there is something of value in the shed.' Returning, Locke led the way to a door upon the other side of the house. Showing them into a small room, 
furnished with books and scientific apparatus, and evidently a study, he set down the lantern and with a sign bade them be seated. Upon their doing so, he produced a small pad of paper and a pencil. Handing these to Ashton Kirk, he stood peering at them expectantly. With the swift, accurate touch of an expert, the investigator wrote in the Pittman shorthand, We ask pardon if we have startled you. Then he tore off the sheet and handed it to Professor Locke. The man seemed surprised at the medium selected by his visitor. Nevertheless, he quickly traced the following in the same characters. Who are you? What is your errand? We were sent to you by Dr. Mercer, replied Ashton Kirk with flying pencil. Our business is to secure the admission of a new pupil. Locke read this and regarded them for a moment doubtfully. Why did you not press the button at the door? he demanded in writing. I hardly expected you to have such a thing as a bell, answered Ashton Kirk, on the pad. And so, seeing you, I attracted your attention as best I could. Professor Locke read this, and stood with his pencil poised, when the buzzer sounded harshly. He went at once into the hall. They heard him open the door, and in a few moments he returned, followed by Haynes. The fingers of the two flashed their signals back and forth. Then a look of relief came into Locke's face. He even smiled and nodded understandingly at the two young men. "'I beg pardon, gentlemen,' said Hayes. "'But when I got back to the hall, Dr. Mercer made me return and make sure that you had got to see the professor.' "'Thanks,' replied the investigator. "'We had not the slightest difficulty.' "'I'm glad to hear it, sir,' said the man. Good night to you. He flashed the same wish to the mute, who answered readily. Then he went out, and through the window they saw his light again go bobbing away in the darkness. Then the professor began to write once more. I beg your pardon, was his message in longhand. The man tells me that it was quite as you say, but I must confess I was a trifle startled. The lady, wrote Ashton Kirk, seemed startled, too. For the fraction of a moment, the mute halted in his reply. Then the pencil, with much assurance, formed the following. It was my niece. She was about to go just as you came. So do not reproach yourself for having driven her away. For some time the penciled conversation continued between the two. But, as it was all based upon the fanciful pupil, whom the investigator stated he desired to place in Dr. Mercer's care, Pendleton paid little heed to it. At last, however, they bid the professor good-bye, and left him upon the threshold, his massive head nodding his adieus, his frail little body sharply outlined by the glow from the hall. The two had reached their own car around on the other road before Pendleton spoke. Then he inquired, Well, have you learned anything from him? I think I can say yes to that, answered the other. But I'm not yet sure. I'll have to put it to the proof first, according to the formula which I gave you a half hour ago. If it succeeds, I'll tell you what it is. If it does not, I'll say nothing, 
and it will go upon the scrap heap devoted to broken fancies. And now, Dixon, to the chauffeur, we'll go home. End of chapter 15